It's Super Bowl Sunday, and still, all that Yaakov Katz and I can think of is what's going on in the Middle East. It's been quite a week, and we touch on the big topics. The continuing implosion of UNRWA, exposed further for being complicit in Hamas military operations in Gaza. On Saturday night, the Israeli government disclosed an enormous Hamas server farm that was situated underground beneath UNRWA headquarters in Rafah. No doubt, Israeli intelligence is coming through the discovery. But what is astonishing, even for UNRWA, is that its director, Philippe Lazzarini, swears up and down that he had no idea. It's just not credible. We discuss this ongoing fiasco, the worsening humanitarian crisis, Israel's final push on Rafah, American anger at Israel, and, of course, the continuing plight of the hostages. Oh, and since we recorded this a few hours ago, I've seen the two ads that will be running during the Super Bowl. The one about bringing all those hostage dads home, the clips in the video. Other than the first father, those dads are all real hostage fathers. It's a very powerful, very powerful ad. Enjoy the game and let's bring them home now. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and now living in the magnificent state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. So nice to see you again, Yaakov Katz, on this Sunday morning in Detroit, where you find yourself, right? In cold, frosty Detroit, yes. Is that cold? Is it? How bad is it? For, for me, it's cold, because I'm, okay. I'm from Chicago, but I've been after living in Israel for so long. You yeah, lose yeah. immunity to the cold that they have here. <laughs> no, I nearly caused a riot this morning at my seniors yoga, which I may have to talk about every week now. But I go in and it's a beautiful day in Tel Aviv. It's 20 degrees. It's sunny. The doors open. And it was me against all the other ladies because I think it's hot. I think it's summer. I'm wearing a tank top. I'm wearing shorts. They're wearing layers of sweaters in yoga. And they look at me like I'm crazy. They say it's horror if it's winter. I'm like, no, it's not actually. It's summer. Now, and just before we dive into all the fabulously controversial issues we're going to talk about today. You were first in my hometown, Toronto, giving a talk last week, correct? Over Shabbat in a very lovely community led by Rabbi Steve Warnick at the synagogue congregation Beth Tzedek. I think the largest conservative movement shul in North America, maybe. Oh, not um, only, listen, I used to live, there's a street between Beth Tzedek and Holy Blossom. Bethsedek is the largest conservative in North America congregation, and Holy Blossom is the largest reform. And the street is a few hundred meters. I guess, depending on who you talk to, I lived in a very holy stretch of Toronto. <laughs> and many of the kids on that street were day school kids, and it was great because they could actually walk to school one way, very short walk up or down. Uh, so I know where you were very well. And Big, nice strong. town. You got a nice town over there, let me tell you. You think, eh? Yeah, I think so. Not in Toronto people, sorry, but I've been there a lot over the last 10 years since I moved. It ain't what it was. It's gone downhill a lot. But so yeah, it's better than a lot of other cities. And I have a very warm, special spot for the place. So glad you enjoyed your time there. And now I sit in Tel Aviv, you sit in cold Detroit, and we're going to talk about what's going on in Israel. Uh, big week, big week. I think no question that the top story is UNRWA. And without a doubt. 
Yeah. So I'm just going to invite you to go free form on that. We have almost, I'm going to, I have to preface it with some comments. I'm doing a lot of work on that. I have a really good podcast that I recorded last week with Anat Wolf, and we're just going to do a quick update so we can drop that. UNRWA is a huge story. It's nobody's been paying attention for 15 years and all of a sudden the whole thing blew up and this extraordinary discovery and disclosure of a very sophisticated Hamas communications, high-tech bunker, server kind of palace right below UNRWA headquarters in Rafiah in Gaza is extraordinary. And what's even more extraordinary is that UNRWA is pretending they didn't know anything about it. And cables that are going down, computer cables that are going down from the UNRWA offices into what is that tunnel complex where they have that server farm and from where Hamas, who knows what they were able to do. I like the server palace. palace. That's a better term. Server palace is grander and everything they do is so grand. But yes, it's not only are the cables seen going right down, there are multiple shafts. We know that in 2014, there were concerns about some kind of unstable floor or office structure in part of the UNRWA building. And you would think that UNRWA would notice that they're electrical. Somebody would have paid attention, right? Maybe. If someone, if somebody had a pipe going down through your apartment in Tel Aviv and was taking your water or your electrical bill was going through the roof, you might notice something, right? That's how it is. Look, UNRWA has for long, almost forever, been the problem and not the solution. I think yeah. that we in Israel have known that. They perpetuate the conflict, the way that they continue to pass on the refugee status to different generation after generation of Palestinian displaced people from the 1948 War of Independence, the way that they allow for this hateful incitement, anti-Israel, wipe Israel off the map education system in Gaza with their workers. So knowing now that some UNRWA people were involved in the October 7th massacre, maybe that's the cherry on top of what the world needed. But we, we you and I have known this for years, a not has written, wrote a whole book about this uh, yep. a bunch of years ago. I think what's interesting, you mentioned how I was in Toronto over, over Shabbat, is the Trudeau government, which pledged back in 2016, I think it was $200 million to UNRWA, and outpledged a bunch of European countries, including the UK. And okay, I get it. But now that the this evidence is on the table, what's the world, like Canada, like other countries, what are they going to do? Are they going to finally use the money that they've been throwing at this agency, which perpetuates the conflict and enables war to unfortunately thrive in yeah. Gaza? Are they finally going to use their money to insist on change and say, we're not paying for it anymore? That's what the world, people ask me all the time, what can the world do? What can we do? You can get your governments to stop funding organizations like UNRWA, which yeah. are perpetuating a, a war with Israel and are allowing for a generation of Palestinians to be raised to hate us. So I have to say, if you had asked me two days ago, Anat and I did our recording, I think Wednesday or Thursday. And if you had asked me right after that, and of course I asked her, what do you think? Where's the world going to go with this? I would have said, no, they're not going to change. And the main reason I would have said that, two reasons. One is, okay, so big deal, 12, right? Because we're all pretending it's just 12. UNRWA employees who are actually Hamas guys. It's much more. We know that. But more importantly, the response of Secretary General Guterres was, okay, I'm going to strike a special committee and they're going to have a mandate. And the mandate is going to be for UNRWA to self-assess whether or not they responded 
as quickly and urgently and responsibly as possible once they learned of these terrible problems. It's a foregone conclusion, but that's not the issue, how quickly they responded. That's complete deflection. The real issue is as you stated it. But I think that with the disclosure of the server farm palace and so many other things that go along with it, no one, except Philippe Lazzarini, who did, but no one can say anymore they didn't know or we didn't know. Because as Hillel Neuer put in one of his fabulous tweets uh, yesterday, the day before, either it's extreme negligence, but nobody can be that stupid not to have noticed. So when Philippe Lazzarini comes out and says, this must have all been developed after October 12th when we vacated the premises, come on. They are in so deep over their head. And I, I like, to- by the way, how F- Philippe Lazzarini, who's the commission general of uh, UNRWA, when yeah. he tweeted, I did not know what was under the headquarters, the COGAT, yeah. the coordinator of government activities in the territories of Israel, tweeted back, oh, you knew. <laughs> I, mean, I, thought, I mean, it's for people who aren't on Twitter, this is actually a kind of fun few days for, for Team Israel. But I also have to respond to your point about Canada, because Canada, it's not America, it's not a superpower, it's not Germany, but Canada punches above its weight when it comes to UNRWA. And I happen to be serving, I was ambassador when Stephen Harper was in office and directed that we were pulling all of our funding from UNRWA. This was in early in 2014. And let me tell you, the bureaucrats, which they hate being called, they prefer being called not professional nonpartisan public servants, which I question, but they went crazy. They were like, no, you can't pull funding. And so it was a real mess, but we did pull the funding. As soon as Justin was in, priority number one of the bureaucrats and Justin's government, Justin Trudeau's government, was to not only restore funding to UNRWA, but to increase it, right? And Canada, on a per capita basis, is a huge donor. We don't have a large population, 40 million people, been giving tons of money. And they, when this whole sort of freeze, pause, reconsideration of UNRWA happened a couple of weeks ago, we won't get into it in detail, but Trudeau tripped over his feet. I think his shoelaces were tied together again said that he was pausing funding. turns out that he'd actually sneaked it out earlier and was trying to... Right, like the same day they sent over 30-something million dollars. I saw that as well. Listen, the world really has... But but now it's a big problem because now it's for them. Are you going to give money to this? Yeah. As I said to them on Twitter, why don't you just write the check straight to Hamas, cut out the middleman, because I think the middleman's done here. This is something that really the world has to get its head around. And I, I think we haven't... They're not yet there. I've long believed since October 7th, that just like October 7th for Israel is this mm. wake-up call and this watershed moment, which changes the way we're going to do security from now, hopefully going forward. We're not going to allow for a terrorist army monster like Hamas to just grow on the other side of a border and think that a high fence makes a good neighbor. The world also has to use this October 7th massacre as a watershed moment for itself and say that what was can no longer be. And unfortunately, this so far, they're failing with the test about UNRWA. They're also failing, by the way, with the test about Rafa. Let's get into Rafa. Talk about what's going on there. No, I'll, I'll just make the connection because like, I'm, I was looking before at David Cameron comments, the UK foreign secretary and others and everybody warning and John Kirby, who made comments late last week, the White House spokesperson of we don't support basically an operation in Rafah because of uh, all the displaced Palestinians who are there. And I'm like thinking it would be like the world when they went after ISIS in Mosul and Israel were to step up and say, hey, listen, that neighborhood in, in Mosul, I don't know, neighborhood X, 
Don't yeah. go in there. Bad idea. You can't go in there. We're against you operating in that neighborhood. Come on. Guys, this is a war. It's a war against a terrorist, brutal, barbaric army yeah. that if it's not taken care of and it's not degraded to the fullest extent possible, it will continue to attack and carry out October 7th style massacres. And the world, I just don't understand where they are, right? They're missing the point and they're failing. And all these decisions, I understand what they're doing, obviously, right? They have internal politics. They got Biden's got the, the U.S. election coming, right? I'm sure you read with great interest the John Finer comments to uh, the Deputy National Security Advisor here in Michigan, where I am right now. You to stole the... my thunder, Yaakov. I was going to do such an artful segue. Well, yeah, I already, <laughs> trust me, I'm on top. I got it. I got it. But like this state, I'm here, right? Yeah, meeting and speaking. But like I came because this is the swing state, right? It's like Biden thinks this is this. And by the way, to some extent, I get it. But uh, Trump, I was looking back at the 2016 numbers. Trump yeah. won Michigan. He carried the state by 10,000 votes over Hillary. Now, wow. Biden, four years later, beat Trump by about 100 plus thousand votes, 150,000 or so. But it shows you that the margins are very slim. And if he just has 100,000 Arab Americans who live in Dearborn, who stay home and don't vote, that could mean the state and goes to, to Trump. So he sends John Finer, his deputy national security advisor, to meet with Arab American leaders and says, hey, yeah, we, we, there were a lot of mistakes that we made after October 7th. We, we should not have done what we did with that kind of unequivocal support. What are you guys doing? No, seriously, what are you doing? What do you think this is going to do? So I get it. Maybe it'll help you win the election. But this will come back to haunt you because they came after us first. They're coming after everyone else. And, so that's, I wanna, Unra, I read, and that's Rafa. So for people who haven't read that, whatever you think of the New York Times, it's actually a really important article. Israel's going into Rafa. You know why they have to. That Egypt just built, like whatever our wall is, which was useless anyhow, Egypt's built an even bigger, more fortified wall along its border with the Gaza Strip. They have tanks lined up there. Why did why is Egypt so heavily fortified against Hamas? It's not against it, us. No, of course, because they don't want Hamas coming in to Egypt, right? Nobody wants the Palestinians spilling over into their territory. They all get it, by the way. The other thing that how do we know that the Arab states get it? Right. Not Egypt. They're not, exactly. They're not condemning us. Yeah. They're not, there's according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, aka Hamas. Oh. Israel has killed 25, 26,000 people, right? Wouldn't you expect the whole Arab streets to be on fire, people to be protesting? Probably, it seems sometimes that there are more people protesting in Dearborn, Michigan, than there are in Cairo or Amman, and definitely in places like Abu Dhabi and, and Riyadh, right? The, the whole Arab world wants Israel to take down Hamas yep. and to win this war. And unfortunately, our Western allies sometimes seem to be trying to tie our hands behind our back. And I think a lot of that does. You put the you hit the nail on the head. I think a lot of that has to do with the four months of vicious anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, Muslim Brotherhood, pro-Hamas demonstrations. And Toronto is right at the top of the list. Yeah, they were blocking high, like highways by you, right? Yeah, it's a mess. And nobody has the political resolve to shut it down. And there are more Muslim voters in Canada and many places, and there are Jewish voters. So I think that the kind of the weakness or the lack of decisiveness that we see in the West totally reflects their political nervousness. It's the ballot box. Even in Western Europe, I think that if Macron and Rishi Sunak and Georgia Maloney, if they could shut these demonstrations down much more aggressively, they would. 
They've made that very clear, but they're worried about their political futures. In the Middle East, everybody rules with an iron fist. Okay. More and more so in Israel as well. And okay. you know what, Vivian? I, I, let's be All honest right. for a moment. It's hard to criticize, overly criticize these Western leaders who are prioritizing politics ahead of national security and what's right. Because also back home, we have uh, political leaders who sometimes are also prioritizing their political survival over what's right for the country as well. This Absolutely. is not a, and an isolated phenomenon. No, we're not. We're not. We're not being preachy here and, and judgy in that way. It, it's all over. And so we certainly have that problem in Israel in spades. Right. Exactly. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com. All one word. Now, back to the podcast. So we have this really bombshell discovery of the Hamas headquarters right below UNRWA. And we'll see how that plays out over the next few days. That also happens to be located in Rafah where Israel is clearly getting ready to go in on what we hope, expect will be a final offensive uh, against Hamas. And there's been all kinds of information floated about, we know that Yahya Sinwar has been reduced to communicating by pigeon, like real old school, his telecommunications, his cell phone, whatever electronic communication he relied upon seems to have been shut down. There has been talk about Hamas leaders wanting safe passage to Yemen. What do you know about what's going on there? What's likely to come? And what do we hope to get out of it? Rafah is pretty much the last place that Israel has yet to really operate. And, and there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, the Egyptians have put a lot of pressure on Israel not to come near that area. It is like a 14-kilometer strip of land, what the IDF used to call when it was in control of Gaza ahead of the 2005 disengagement, the Philadelphia Corridor. And that's where Hamas has for decades been smuggling in weapons and supplies. They have massive tunnel complexes underneath there that go from Egypt into Gaza, and they can use that. That's their lifeline of weapons right. from the outside world. For the, con for the war to end without that being anything happening there would allow them to essentially be able to rebuild and replenish their stockpiles. But the Egyptians don't, didn't want Israel to operate there because they were concerned that it would lead to a spillover of displaced Palestinians into Egypt. And Egypt has no interest in that. The other thing is, let's not forget, Vivian, Israel displaced or asked a lot of about a million Palestinians in the north when they were began the ground offensive there a couple of months ago to move to the south. Right. And they are now a lot of them are residing in that area. So for Israel to go in there in a big way, what happens to those displaced Palestinians? And that's what makes this extremely complicated. We saw that on Friday. Friday, Netanyahu, prime minister, asked the IDF for a plan to begin to prepare for an offensive in Rafah. There are reports today that the Egyptians 
are telling Hamas that if there's not a deal within the next two weeks, the IDF is going in to Rafah. So this might be the last big push of this ground offensive. We'll see if this is leverage over Hamas to try to get a deal or if it's genuine and the IDF is really going all the way with it. If this is where Sinwar is is holding up somewhere in a tunnel there and he feels like this this is the Alamo, this is his last stand, maybe either he goes down fighting or he actually prefers to strike a deal where he can stay alive and prevent this Israeli offensive. I, I, just, I just want to add one, one thing that's important, Please. if you don't mind. And that is that I've had a lot of people who have been saying to me, how could you go in there? There are displaced people. You told the displaced people to go there. And again, like it would be this horrible thing that Israel operates in Rafa. The, guys, there's a simple way that this ends. There really is a simple way. Again, give us back our people and stop attacking us. And I know, I see you're rolling your eyes because it's like, of course, it's not going to happen. But we have to keep on pounding away at that message because it's really and, true. And what do you think? You've been watching Sinwar longer than I have. You've greater insight into the way he thinks and operates. Do you think that he would likely uh, jump on a plane to Yemen or go down fighting with the boys? It's hard for me to know. I've spoken actually in the last couple of weeks with a few people who interrogated Sinwar back in the 90s when he was arrested, I think it was 88 or 89, he was arrested for sentenced like four or five life terms in prison for killing collaborators, actually Palestinian informants. He is a brutal, vicious, barbaric person in through and through. That is what all the descriptions are of him. What does he, but also very calculated and very strategic as we've seen in what he's done over these last 127, 28 days now. It's very hard to know exactly what he'll do, but I, I would not be surprised if he decides to go down fighting and to turn himself into this martyr that will be looked at to by the Palestinian terrorist organizations for generations to come. On the other hand, he looks to his friends Ismail Haniya and Abu Marzouk and some of these other guys who are living up the life of luxury in Doha. Why not get in on some of that? Who knows, right? It, it's really going to be difficult to know, but Israel's got to get their hands on this guy. That That's without a question. Why would Egypt not have uh, shut down the access to this very large and sophisticated network of tunnels that continues to feed uh, the Gaza Strip from Egyptian territory? Look, we could be critical of Egypt for, for allowing these tunnels to continue to exist and not doing enough to crack down on them. But it's I think it's a similar policy to the one that we saw up until October 7th, also on the Israeli side. Yeah. Keep it there. It's there. It's locked in. They're, they're they're closed in. It's not our problem. Let them get some stuff. Let, th- let it flow through every once in a while. Why do we want to deal with it? If we crack down on the tunnels, we're going to fight with the Bedouin tribes in the Sinai. We're going to fight with the Islamists. We're going to have issues with the Muslim Brotherhood that we've been cracking down. Why do we need that? We'll do a little, we'll pay lip service, but we'll actually just let it a bit flow through. Everybody has other interests yep. and they make decisions and we can say they're right, they're wrong. But now they've made these decisions and they're living with them. And we have to make a decision now what we're going to do. I guess of all the the things that Egypt uh, has allowed to pass through those tunnels into the Gaza Strip over the last 10, 15 years, the one thing they might have clamped down on would have been weapons. And we know that most of the weapons that Hamas is using came through those tunnels. Let yeah. the food in, let even the dual-use concrete, let the medicine in. But the weapons? I would have thought that Israel and Egypt might have a kind of good tachos conversation about that at some point, and I'm sure they have. 
So basically what we're wrapping up here and saying we've got this really wild situation with UNRWA that is going to continue to get a lot of attention this week. And who knows where that goes and in what direction. A lot, I think, will determine, will be turn on how the United States and Germany react to this clear, open, no one can deny any longer the fact that UNRWA and Hamas are basically commingled in the Gaza Strip. But it's going to take some big Western powers to actually move that needle. We have this kind of imminent Israeli offensive on Rafah, where Sinwar is believed to be holed up, and where the tunnels are that go into Egypt, and also where likely the remaining hostages are being kept in proximity to Sinwar. So all of this kind of mess gets resolved possibly in the coming weeks. One we are in a tipping point in this war. That is, you said it very well. That is true. And I think Israel also knows, let's not forget Joe Biden's comments on Thursday. Israel's yeah. over the top. Time to wrap this up. That clock is ticking. Israel knows it. And that's why we're coming at the next couple of weeks. This is the crunch time for this war and for Israel's massive ground, high intensity ground offensive. I thought that it was interesting that Joe Biden made that comment. I mean, Joe Biden does make vague comments, not infrequently, that require interpretation. But that comment came out on Thursday, on the same day that there was this secret closed door meeting between John Finer and Arab American leaders. I find it hard to accept that's just serendipitous. Probably not. Probably not. Okay, so we're going to end this on a really cynical down note. Have a great week, Yaakov. Thank you, Vivian. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv.